Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. William Smith is director of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at Catholic University of America. His articles have appeared in the American Conservative, uh, the National Interest, Spectator USA, and The Hill. And his recent book is entitled Democracy and Imperialism, Irving Babbitt and Warlike Democracies. Welcome, Director Smith. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, first, would you just tell our listeners, what does the Center for Statesmanship at Catholic University do? What are you, what are you guys for? Well, we, um, we have a focus on foreign policy, but we're not your typical international relations academic center where we talk about different theories and count up tanks in one country versus tanks in another. We have a very philosophical orientation. We want to kind of get the, at the roots of what disorder is in, in, in the world. Where does it come from? Why do, why do civilizations clash with one another? Uh, what motivates good leadership? What motivates unsound leadership? Um, it's really looking at foreign policy through the perspective of political philosophy. And do, uh, do undergraduates, are they involved? Or is this just a graduate uh, or faculty fellowship program? Who, who are you, who's your audience, your direct audience? Your direct customers? <laughs> we do lots. We do lots of campus events for undergraduates. We have also put together what we consider our franchise, which is a course we teach every semester called Republic or Empire, a discussion of American foreign policy. And that's offered to undergraduates, um, upperclassmen typically. But we, we also have podcasts and we put things on YouTube and we have a website where we put our publications. So our audience, uh, we want it to be as broad as possible. With the the chaos or the upheavals of 2020 with the, the woke revolution uh, is, is in full, full sway and the pandemic even. Are you going to try to integrate statesmanship programming issues to uh, the ways in which the, the, some of the extremism of the present time really does come into play in the training of statesmen and the and the acts of statesmanship? Absolutely. I mean, this is a critique I'd make of conservatives generally, who I'm very sympathetic to, is that they have concentrated very much on electoral politics, getting presidents elected, going back to Reagan. You know, the goal of National Review is to get Reagan elected. Um, and they, they neglected to a certain degree the culture, you know, and the culture really sets the parameters for what statesmen can do. Their politicians are powerful, but they're not that powerful. Um, they have to operate within certain boundaries, and those boundaries are set by the culture. And what's clear, I think, 
in 2020 is that the, the culture is really out of control. And if you're, you're going to have a domestic culture that's out of control, that your foreign policy of your nation is going to be somewhat out of control. And I think we've seen a, a very aggressive American foreign policy, particularly since the end of the Cold War, which is hard to reconcile with the American constitutional tradition. Well, let me let me ask you, how, how so? You want to give any specific examples there? Well, well, the, 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 the obvious elephant in the room is the Iraq war. I mean, here's a war where hundreds of thousands of people were killed, many innocents. It was justified on the basis of weapons of mass destruction, which ended up not being there. Saddam Hussein was certainly a terrible dictator, but the, the violence that was wrought by the Iraq war dwarfed anything that Saddam had, had inflicted on his own people. Um, and there wasn't really a, a strong national interest for the United States to do that. There was a sort of belligerence. There was a, an arrogance and a hubris in the American policymakers that said, we're going to remake the world in the, in the we're going to make, remake the Middle East in, into a democracy. And we're going to do that through force of arms. And once we democratize Iraq, all the other all the other uh, states in the Middle East are going to see that as an example and follow it. That's kind of the exact opposite of what Washington recommended in his farewell address, which is don't don't have don't have passionate hatreds or or, or friendships. Treat all good nation nations with goodwill. Um, have a humble foreign policy. Um, we've we've gotten away from that kind of constitutional tradition, and it's not a good thing. I mean, as I write about in the book. A lot of very famous and very worthy democracies, Athens, ancient Athens, the Roman Republic, and French revolutionary France all ended in kind of orgies of warfare. And democracies can be very warlike. Um, and that seems to be the direction that the United States is going. And that's my concern. And I, I presume that this is one of the things that led you to this book on Irving Babbitt's thought, especially as it applies to issues of democracy and, and imperialism. Uh, is that, I mean, is, is this a longstanding passion for you with Irving Babbitt, or has it been maybe speeded up at least by the progress of American foreign policy for the last 20 or 30 years? Uh, that's that's an interesting question because I, I was a PhD student in the late 1980s and I kind of never drift. I drifted off, ran out of money, and then I had a long career in government and then in the corporate world. And when I retired from the corporate world a few years ago, my wife said, "Why don't you go back and finish the PhD?" Which is what I did. So I've been reading Irving Babbitt for 30 years or more. Um, and it was with the Iraq war that I made the connection to his thought and foreign policy, although it wasn't some deep insight on my part because Babbitt wrote explicitly about foreign policy. He not only wrote about the, the, the wars of the French Revolution and how they came about, but he also he was writing and, and teaching in the lead up to the Great War and in the aftermath of the Great War. And he wrote a lot about foreign policy of the West. Um, and how modernity had fostered kind of a violent outlook among Western leaders. Um, so it was the connection was easy to make. And but I, I wanted to bring Babbitt up, up to uh, uh, his analysis to contemporary events uh, like U.S. foreign policy recent decades. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And actually, you used a term a few minutes ago that comes up in the book. Uh, frequently, and that term was, quote, warlike democracies. You know, I remember reading 
in the end of history and one of the in the end of history in the last man fukuyama's book from the early 90s that was was such a sensation uh very popular but one of the points that fukuyama relied upon there was that you know democracies don't tend to make war on one another and when i read you you, you using the term warlike democracy i thought you know is there is there a uh, is there an argument there with with uh Fukuyama's assumption? There, there is an argument there. Now, now, in fairness, there there is a, a whole scholarly field called democratic peace theory, and and they have some credible credible anecdotal examples of you know two banana republics that are ruled by dictators in in, in South America that for a long time were at war with each other, and then they both became democracies and peace broke out among those two nations. There are anecdotal examples like that all over the place. But what I think Fukuyama ignores is the great democracies. You know, Athens, the Athenian army ended up at the bottom of a a quarry in Syracuse because they were so warlike in the end. The Roman Republic, same story. Caesar crossed the Rubicon. Their wars ending their democracy. And the French Revolution, same story. They they started out as a domestic revolution. We're going to have a free equality fraternity. We're going to be the shining example to everybody. And then basically they got together and said, wait a minute, these kings that are surrounding us, they're a threat too. We ought to go after them. And one of my favorite lines from Robespierre, which is a line George W. Bush should have paid attention to in 2002, Robespierre looked at these people saying, we have to go after these monarchies militarily. And he said, no one likes armed missionaries. Um, but he ended up losing and they ended up going to war with Austria and Prussia and everybody in their neighborhood. Um, and, and which brought in Napoleon. So, you know, the, some of the great democracies ended in imperialist war and, uh, Fukuyama doesn't seem to acknowledge that. Turning to Babbitt on on these issues, uh, very closely, especially with the French revolution that, that you raised, Babbitt saw the intellectual genesis of really the modern world as flowing out of two streams, both of which have their errors. One is the the scientific mentality, the scientism of Bacon and his followers. The other is the sentimentality of Rousseau, uh, both of which he, he termed a, a species of naturalism. Correct. What what was what was the problem with Bacon's scientism? Where did that lead to political mistakes? So Babbitt um, Babbitt tried to be very ecumenical. He he saw even in the earliest twentieth century that people were becoming less religious, and he tried to say, you know, the, the spiritual nature of human beings is apparent from experience. You don't have to rely on dogmas or faith. You just think about yourself. You are cleft between a higher self and a lower self. You're pulled by selfish desires, but there's also a part of you that can overcome those. And all the great religious traditions have acknowledged that. You know, St. Paul said, align your will with God's will. Don't align your will with your lower will. Um, in, In Confucianism, they ask Confucius, what is the superior man? And Confucius says the superior man is someone who does work that other men cannot see. In other words, they have an inner life. They're struggling to overcome their selfishness. 
In Hinduism, it's called an inner check. You, you exercise the inner check to prevent your, yourself from becoming selfish. So Babbitt had this insistence that human nature had this dualism, higher and a lower self. And, and that's the wisdom of the ages that goes across all the great religious and ethical traditions. Modernity's problem is they came in and said, no, dualism doesn't exist. Science came in in the Enlightenment and said, wait a minute, no, no, we can figure out all these problems through scientific analysis. And sociology was the science that came out of human behavior that said, if we just manipulate people's incentives, we can have an orderly society, kind of denying denying that there's this struggle within the human being. And then sentimental humanitarianism is modern ethics. So the older tradition was you need to follow your conscience. You need to overcome your passions. You need to overcome your selfish desires. Modern ethics is the Hollywood star who stands up at a press conference and says, I am in favor of the homeless and I am going to fight for them and is a, an absolute disaster personally, is, treats all their family and friends terribly, is a terrible person, but associates virtue with a sentimental cause, a humanitarian cause. And, and that's, Babbitt's, that's Babbitt saying modern world, both in science and in sentimental humanitarian, is denying this struggle within the soul of the individual, which is the core of human nature. That's what makes human beings different from everything else in the universe is they have this higher self that can determine their freedom of action. And that he says the modernity has denied that by concentrating on both science and by associating virtue with these sentimental uh, causes. Does, does Babbitt ever uh, align this dualism with original sin or he, he does, he want that, that that's not ecumenical enough for him. No, no, he, he explicitly aligns it with original sin. And, you know, some people say Babbitt's hostile to religion. It's completely untrue. Babbitt at, points, at one point says the, really the only institutions that is capable of saving Western civilization is probably the Roman Catholic Church. But he wanted to, what he wanted to speak to people in terms that they could understand in their own experience. He believed that a lot of dogmas were becoming opaque and they weren't moving people anymore. He wanted to speak to them in the experience of their own life. And anybody who's sensitive at all, who has even a little bit of a conscience, knows you're pulled in one direction by selfish desires, but you have a part of yourself that can say, no, I can overcome that. And Babbitt wanted to appeal to people that way to say, you are spiritual beings. You have a divine part of yourself you don't, I don't have to prove by pointing to a dogma. I can prove by pointing to your own actual experience. Um, and he's very awful that way, using all sorts of analogies and parallels between Eastern religions, and Christianity, and, and classical Greece. How did uh, Rousseau redefine virtue then? I mean, did he just cancel the whole idea of virtue and simply say, uh, uh, follow, you know, follow your passions? Yes. That's exactly what he said. He said the goal is to get back to being the noble savage, where you don't even think. Human beings are corrupted when they think, Rousseau says. The greatest follower of Rousseau, Robespierre, said, virtue itself is a natural passion. It flows naturally. Rousseau's whole theory of education, it's laid out in the Emil, is give children no habits. It's the exact opposite of what Aristotle 
uh, advises, let children be completely spontaneous. He's the inspiration for the Montessori school. Just let, let, let these kids follow their hearts. Let them do whatever they want, and they'll turn out great. No, there's no, there's no cleft part of human nature. Human, human beings aren't divided. The goal is to get back to the original noble savage where your natural goodness will flow out. And the, the thing that's preventing that are the institutions of civilization. That's what corrupts human beings. It gives them vanity. It gives them the desire to accumulate wealth. These institutions are the things that have to be brought to heal, which is why he was the inspiration for the French Revolution. Taylor, tear it all down. Tear down the church, tear down the aristocracy, tear it all down. Was, was the repudiation of Christianity the most important element of the French Revolution for Babbitt? Was, was that ultimately what it was really out for? Yes, but more important than just the institutional church, it's the outlook of Christianity, the idea that human beings have these two parts. That's what, that's what they wanted to expunge. They believed that human be the natural goodness of human beings would come out once all these other corrupting institutions were destroyed. Then the general will of the people, the pure will would come out. And we see that view of democracy now. I mean, it, that's, that's almost a standard view of democracy in the United States. What, what should we do? Let's take a poll. If it's a good poll, we'll find out what the people really want. And let's, that's what we, we should implement. Yeah. Now, you, you or, or, or Babbitt have a lot to say about democracy leading to war and leading to peace. What are the, what are the elements... What are the inherent elements of democracy that can slide into this warlike condition? Well, the most important thing, and, and this is something that Rousseau doesn't believe in, is leadership. You know, democracies can't deny that the, the quality of the leadership is going to determine the quality of the democracy. And if you have leaders who are unhinged, who have a will to power, the desire to impose their will on other nations and other peoples, you're going to have a warlike democracy. And again, the, the, the framers in the American Constitution had a view to say, those who have a will to power need to be checked. Domestically, they need to be checked through all sorts of constitutional um, checks and balances through a, a myriad of different constitutional procedures to make sure that their arbitrary will is not being imposed upon another one faction versus another. And they would have a similar view of foreign policy, as George Washington did. Don't try to impose your will on other nations. Don't, don't treat everybody with goodwill and humility. And that's, that's not what we've been doing. We go around the world and say, you know what? We're exceptional. You're not. You need to act more like us. You need to have better election processes. You need to have better human rights records. You need we're full of hubris, you know, and then Mark, imagine if, you know, I have, I, I think I have an exceptional family. I'll say that, but I don't go around my town and point at other people and say, I have an exceptional family. You should act more like me. That that's essentially what the U S foreign policy is now. Um, and even if there are, there are exceptional parts of American history, you don't go lauding that over other people. You do, you just don't do that. Now, uh, is Donald Trump, I mean, just to step out for a minute to, to current events, is Donald Trump a step back from what has been sort of Republican internationalism, hawkish policy in the past? Is he a significant change from that? 
well, I mean, if you look at the casualties, he is. He is a, he's a change for the better. You know, even under a president like Obama, who wanted to get out of some of these wars in the Middle East, thousands of Americans were killed. I think combat deaths under Obama are in the low, uh, under Trump are in the low hundreds. And, you know, Trump is a complex figure. I'm, you're an English professor, and I'm sure you teach Shakespeare. And, you know, there, there's no, there are not people just who have good character and bad character. There are people who have different vices and different virtues, and it's complicated. You read Plutarch or any, any of those people who analyze, you know, the human soul. And Donald Trump certainly has vices, you know, his desire for money and bling and all that. That's certainly a vice of his. Um, does he have the vice that Woodrow Wilson has of this kind of missionary view that the United States should impose democracy all around the world. I'm not sure he has that. I'm not sure he has that vice. Um, so I think he's a very complex figure and hard to analyze. And when I say that, you know, the character of the leaders makes all the difference in war and peace, I, I don't need to be simplistic about it. It's not just leaders have good and bad characters. They have different potentialities. Um, and on, on foreign policy, I think Trump generally has the right instincts. He's more belligerent on Iran than I would want. There are some situations in which his rhetoric is too much, but he hasn't started major wars. He hasn't killed hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and you got to put that in the plus column. This is, this is another question that's stepping us slightly out of the Babbitt argument, but you know, the Rousseau comes along with the, the sentimentalism and, you know, Rousseau, he, he opens the confessions by saying, I'm like no one who, who's ever lived before. I'm, I'm unique. I'm special. And this, Babbitt says, you quote Babbitt saying that the idea of the essential goodness and uniqueness of, of individuals discredits a theological conception of man. Now, given the power of Christianity, in the 18th century and, and, and after, even as it, as it has waned as a, as a cultural force, do you think that the church has, or the churches, have failed to take on that Rousseauist, sentimentalist version of humanity sufficiently? That, that they kind of, you know, it sounds so nice what Rousseau is saying, you're all good, that the, the, the the, the church over the over the two centuries, two and a half centuries, has just hasn't wanted to take on that battle and insist upon original sin as the first truth, the human first human truth, I should say. Yeah, you're, you're, I, you've, you've hit on the key issue, I, I believe. I mean, I, I work at the Catholic University of America, so I'm going to have to phrase this very carefully, but... That many, many in the church, many senior leaders in the church, many senior clerics have embraced sentimental humanitarianism. I mean, I, you look at some of the support that's been uh, given to some of the violent protests that have happened in the United States um, by senior clerical leaders. Um, that's a kind of embrace of Rousseau's sentimental humanitarianism with not, you know, they, again, the, the heart of the faith is St. Paul, and that is conform your will to God's will, personally. Not, in, not by marching in the streets, not by putting a bumper sticker on your car, personally. And the church has gotten away from that. And, and the more they get away from that, the more they're going to lose people in the churches. People want to hear a message of personal 
behavior and redemption. They, they don't want to hear messages about this cause or that cause. And, and, and you've seen in some of the Protestant denominations who have embraced those, they're, they're, they're tumbleweeds blowing through those churches. There's nobody there. I do believe that the embrace of sentimental humanitarianism by some in the church has gotten away from what is the, the core and most compelling message of the church. And, and that's, that's sad to me. There are still people who understand this, but um, it worries me um, when they get together and talk about all these global causes rather than reform yourself. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you, in, speaking of people marching in the streets, uh, you, you have a, a quote from Thomas Jefferson in a letter to Madison. This is a famous quote, but I think it's worth repeating here. It has the line by Jefferson telling Madison, I hold it that a little rebellion now and then is a good thing. Now, given, given what you've argued in the book up until that point, that's not a surprising thing for a, a radical Democrat, a radical egalitarian to say at all, is it? No, no. And, and clearly, uh, Babbitt says all of human history can be divided between Washington's view and Jefferson's view. That's how you understand American history, by those two philosophical schools. And Jefferson is clearly a Rousseauist. Jefferson's role in the founding of the country is, is somewhat overrated, if you ask me. I mean, he did write the Declaration of Independence, but he was not there for the Constitution. And I'm not sure he would have been a helpful force um, uh, in writing the Constitution. Because the, the premise of the Constitution is that people are flawed. People are flawed. We need to have a complicated system to make sure that one faction cannot impose its will on the other. There's a view of human nature there that says there's a bad part of human nature that has to be checked. And Jefferson didn't have that view. He just didn't. He was much more an Enlightenment Rousseau figure. You know, he, he talks about rebellion in fairly casual terms in, in that, in that well-known letter. And, you know, sometimes it seems to me that in the mindset of the radical egalitarian vision, there, there's an imagination of mass chaos, if not mass violence, that doesn't altogether disturb them. Do, do, you, do you agree with that? You've seen that? I agree with that 100%. I, I, and it's, it goes back to Rousseau's view that the only way to explain evil, since it's not in the human heart, and they deny that it's in the human heart, the only way to explain evil are these terrible institutions. And what rebellions do is cleanse those institutions. They, they, they bring a new start. You know, the hostility in, towards the police that's currently out there in the country is a sign that people want to deny that there's this lower part of human nature. They don't believe it. it. Just get them away because we don't need them. If the people will, true will comes out, everything will be orderly. Everything will be lovely. It's, a, it's this kind of idealistic denial of the potentialities in human nature. And that Rousseau, that Rousseau mentality lives on in the current, in the current uh, protests. Oh, yes. And, and I think a, a nice answer to those, those wishes or that sentimentality is a quote that you also include and, and that Babbitt includes by Burke, Edmund Burke, the great critic of the French Revolution. And the quote is, the effect of liberty to individuals is that they may do as they please. We ought to see what it pleases them to do before we risk congratulations. 
which can soon turn into complaints. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, that's such a beautiful quote because what Burke is saying is that rights don't happen because they're declared. You know, I, you ever watch that Mayberry RFD show, you know, where Andy Griffiths is the sheriff. He walks around that, he walks around that town without a gun. Now, why does he walk around that town without a gun? Because everyone in that town is self-ordered, right? He doesn't need a gun. Um, Barney Fife, his deputy, looks like a fool for carrying around a gun. He's just going get, to get shot, shoot somebody accidentally. The whole place is self-ordered. So it's free. Liberty comes to Mayberry because the people have self-ordered. And that's where rights come from. When you carry out your responsibilities and you make things orderly, you can be a free people. If you can't act in an orderly fashion, if you act disorderly, is what Burke said, Somebody's going to come in and impose order, and then you've lost your freedom. You, you know, Bill, if everyone is inherently good, how do Rousseau and his revolutionary utopian followers up to the present day explain the presence of enemies and villains who have to be scrubbed from society? Where, where, does, where does human villainy come from? Well, you know, in these social contract theories... Rousseau tells tells a tale, tells a fable to explain this, you know, that, that people were noble savages at one time. They didn't have private property. They didn't covet each other. They lived day to day under the shade of a tree and, and they fished out of the stream, which is where they got their food. And, and the tale then goes into this. He's not making a philosophical argument. He's telling it. He's telling a myth. And then suddenly they, they started trading with each other and the concept of money developed. And with the concept of money, vanity was triggered. Vanity, which was artificial to human nature. It doesn't exist in, inside of us. It, was, it came in from the outside. And with money came institutions. And with institutions came religion. And then all these artificial concepts were introduced. Private property. Yeah, exactly. And he hates private property. He's not making a logical argument. He's, he's telling a myth, telling a tale to explain what he wants to believe about human nature. La last question, Bill. What would Babbitt think, or then, what did he think, and what might he think of today, of nationalism and populism? Well, that's an extremely good question and complicated, and I'm not sure I can answer it quickly. You know, he, he wrote extensively about it because, of course, uh, German nationalism was stirring uh, all through the time he was writing, both before the First War and, the, and, and leading up to the Second. He died in the 30s. So um, he, he saw the Volk, the German nationalism, and he was concerned about that type of nationalism because that type of nationalism is motivated by Rousseau in the sense that Rousseau believed if the natural goodness of the people can be exposed if they can all form as one, no intermediate institutions, just the people themselves, the pureness of the people will come out, you know, and you know, the Nazis went into the forest so that the, the Volk could, the pure Volk could come out. That's all rated in Rousseau. I think the dilemma we have in the United States now, though, is that we have such a, we have a leadership class that's so decadent that populism can be a check on that. That's not supposed to, the way it's supposed to work. You're supposed to have a leadership that's better than the people and that leads them in the right way. That was the framers' view. 
But I think that there's a populism now that's saying, wait a minute, we've got to fix things. You, you've screwed everything up. And there, there's a healthy part of that. There's a dangerous part of that, as Babbitt would say, but there's also a healthy part of that if it, if it checks leaders and brings them back to their senses. Um, but, you know, we're pretty far gone as a democracy. Our presidential elections are basically an exercise in raising money and manipulating popular opinion. The, the Congress is, a, you know, as one person put it, a parliament of whores. The democracy is not in great shape. And I think people get that sense. And at this point, the people may be better than the leaders. And that's when populism might be healthy. But it, it is, as a long-term solution, it's not a good one because you, you need to have a constitutional system to have a healthy democracy. Um, you can't just have people exerting their will because the will could then up be, end up being arbitrary. The book is Democracy and Imperialism, Irving Babbitt and Warlike Democracies. William Smith, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.